0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four,
1: three, two, one, zero,
0: ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital. Major. Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense.
1: Major Garrett.
0: And you should know better. Thank you.
1: you. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing show known as The Takeout, where our dear audience on different platforms across the country, Terrestrial Radio, Sirius XM, Satellite Radio, digital television on our streaming service, CBSN, and on great radio stations around the country. We are two things each and every week. What are those two things? Relentlessly curious and steadfastly non ideological. All points of view are welcome here at The Takeout. The topic this week is going to be a little bit about the topic that has been with us for some 18 weeks now. Coronavirus, COVID-19, all the adaptations we either are or are not making as a country, and what is the near-term outlook, and what are some of the things we can do to know how we're doing, and how to reopen, and how to prepare for whatever comes next. And then a broader discussion about healthcare in America. How does it rate? What does it do well? What does it do poorly? And what kind of things should we think about to address the things we do well and the things we need to do much better at? And our guest to help us through that is Zeke Emanuel. Zeke, I want to say hello. It's great to talk to you.
0: Nice to be here. Thank you for having me on.
1: So I want to start with my audience by having you go through your resume, and the first thing you have to address is your two (laughs) lesser-known
0: brothers. (laughs) Yes, I I have uh, wonderful brothers. Uh, I spoke to both of them today, Rahm Emanuel, former everything-in-government congressman, chief of staff, counselor to the president, and uh, mayor of Chicago. And uh, I spoke to my other brother, Ariel... uh, the uh, Agent Supreme, uh, really uh, great strategic thinker when it comes to entertainment, sports, uh, and all things before eyeballs.
1: Yes. And inspiration for Entourage, is that a, a safe way of describing it or part of Entourage, the, at
0: least the the milieu for that show? Uh, I wouldn't know. I actually have not looked at Entourage. I don't own a TV. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Um, What qualifies you, Zeke, this is the actual part of your resume, not the jokey part of your resume, to have this conversation? You have a tremendous history in here, and I want my audience to know what it is that you've done.
0: Well, um, I trained as a physician and oncologist um, in Boston. Uh, I've also been a bioethicist, worked on improving end-of-life care for more than three decades now. I've also worked a lot on health policy, trying to improve the whole American health care system. I was in the Obama administration for two years working on the Affordable Care Act implementation, as well as global health uh, elements there. Uh, I've written or edited uh, 14 books, published 300 plus articles, uh, and then lots of op-eds and all sorts of other stuff.
1: Are you at this moment currently advising any presidential campaign?
0: Yes, um, I am on the, uh, I guess, COVID-19 task force for uh, uh, Vice President
1: Biden. Very good. On COVID-19, where are we and how alarmed or not alarmed should we be about where we are and where we're heading? Well,
0: I I need to preface this. (laughs) Um, We don't know each other tremendously well, but I'm a relentless optimist, and maybe you picked that up from my book. I I actually think that things are improving. except for COVID. Um, It's hard to describe the uh, response that we've had, you know, over the last four months, beginning, end of February, early March, as anything other than uh, incompetence and pretty disastrous. Um, And I think, you know, here we are early July. um, And in some ways, we're right back where we were mid-March. And we've made no progress, if anything, we might have slipped behind because We've imposed a lot of restrictions on Americans. They are chafing at those restrictions quite understandably. And yet our case numbers in terms of number of new infections, um, mortality, uh, the number of states that are having really uh, serious hotspots is either the same as it was in mid-March or worse. And so that's not progress. That's uh, regression. We, we've, In some ways, you could say we've wasted four months. So
1: as you have observed, and I think anyone who has understood politics before COVID-19 has observed, there was about four to eight weeks when this was not a partisan issue, and then it went away and became a partisan matter of what you thought or said or what statistics you called from the available data about either where COVID-19 was or where it was heading. So let me just ...offer some of the statistics that those who are on the Trumpian side of this equation are holding on to right now. The president says 40 million tests. That's a tremendous increase from where we were. That's progress. Fewer people, when they go to the hospital, need ventilators. That's progress. And even if they need them, we have an ample supply. That's progress. The mortality rate. He's been all over Twitter for the last three or four days. The mortality rate is at a two-month low. That's progress. Evaluate those statistics for me as fr- from as nonpartisan and data-driven perspective as you can.
0: Yeah, look, I, I like to be data-driven and I've given uh, the president uh, uh, his due when he deserves to do. First of all, um, let's just break down the mortality issue. Um, it is true that the mortality rate has gone down. Um, I think uh, two or three things account for that. The first thing is, What we're seeing in the South and the West are younger people getting infected, and we know that their mortality rate uh, from this virus is lower. Second, and I think probably a little bit more important, is in the four or five months that doctors have been treating COVID-19, they've gotten better. We know certain things now that we didn't know before. Don't put people on ventilators. Probably a bad idea give them high concentrations of oxygen without intubating them, that's putting the tube down their throat, they do better. Um, doctors have also figured out how to put on the PPE, the protective equipment, much better so that we're not transmitting virus to sicker patients in the hospital
1: or in nursing We're also uh, protecting nursing homes better than we were initially.
0: Absolutely, and the last thing I would say is, we actually, certainly now in the last, I don't know, three, four weeks, have dexamethasone, this steroid, which really does seem to have um, actually quite good uh, effects on the sickest patients, patients who need oxygen or are intubated. And so we are saving more lives. On the other hand, if you take the number of people who are testing positive and you send it, you know, over 60,000 on its way to 100,000, and you even if you have a better mortality rate, you're still going to have a lot of people dying from COVID, and we shouldn't underestimate we've already increased the mortality rate, um, the total national mortality rate, uh, by at least five percent from COVID. And before the year is out, we'll probably have, I would think, between 220 and 250,000 Americans who died directly from COVID, not to mention those people who are dying indirectly, and what do I mean by indirectly? They have a heart attack, they didn't go to the hospital, they died of a heart attack, but the reason was they didn't go because of COVID. Cancer patients who haven't been able to get their surgery or their chemotherapy or have been hesitant to go to the doctor. So you'll have a huge increase in mortality because of COVID, and that is, you know, it seems to me a failure.
1: Are we making or have we made progress on testing that is worth noting?
0: Yes, we've made small progress in the sense that we're doing more tests, about 500,000, 600,000 a day, but we're nowhere near where uh, experts think we ought to be, where I've said we should be, you know, the minimum is probably 5 million and 10 million. And we've been very, very bad at uh, approving tests and not just doing, uh, you know, uh, having tests that, you know, aren't reliable out there that give you a negative and you don't know, is that really negative or not? I've had a number of people who, you know, you listen to their symptoms, fever, fatigue, loss of taste, loss of smell, you know, it sounds just like COVID and it's not short time fatigue, it's five weeks fatigue and they tested negative for COVID. Well, that's a mistaken test. I mean, you know, it's like the clinical symptoms look like it, you just ignore the test. Well, that's a silly way. The, uh, third thing i would say about uh the
1: situation hold that thought right there zeke because i need to jump to a break on segment two of the takeout zeke emmanuel will finish his thought on testing and more of our conversation not only about where we are but he and colleagues of his has put together a way to understand how to approach this going forward all that coming up on segment two of the takeout in just a second
0: CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett.
1: Welcome back to the show. Our special guest, Zeke Emanuel, healthcare expert, as he mentioned in segment one, an advisor to the COVID 19 task force for former Vice President Joe Biden. Take that as you will. Zeke, finish your thought about testing
0: and the context around it. A lot of the testing is still unreliable, especially when you get to the antibody testing. Um, I'd say two more points. The first is we were extremely slow to develop good testing, and we still don't have the best testing that we should, which is point-of-care testing that relies on uh, a strip like a pregnancy strip or a malaria strip or an HIV strip that other uh, places have. It's taken a very long time to develop that, and we should have had that already and tested it out and had three or four different manufacturers making them And the last thing I would say is I've talked to a number of people uh, where they get tested and it's days before they get a result. Well, that's not helpful. If it's four or five days before you get a result, it's like, I could have gotten infected. This is of no clinical value in shaping what I do. So I would say, yes, we're marginally better at testing. Are we four or five months better at testing? Absolutely not. We don't have enough tests. The tests The tests are unreliable. And we have uh, a situation where there's strong delay in getting testing. And now we're beginning to hear, because of the explosion of cases in the South and the West, that the big lab corporations, LabCorp, Quest, that do huge numbers of these tests, they're actually running out of capacity. Well, this is not a good way of running a railroad. And this is a failure of the Trump administration, because they said, Anyone who wants a test will be able to get a test. Well, that is patently false. See, not
1: too long ago, I had a conversation with an epidemiologist at Yale, and she said to me, you know, and this was two about about two and a half weeks ago. So numbers were rising, but they are they weren't where they are now, which was much higher. She said, We don't appreciate how bad these numbers are because it's in the summer when we can be outside, when heat and humidity do have at least a marginally positive effect on our behavior and on transmissibility. And I'm very afraid about what the fall will look like because we will have to be indoors. There will be another flu virus unrelated to COVID-19
0: that will complicate all of this. Agree? Oh, uh, exactly my words. I've been saying that for several months now, which is, yes, we'll get outside. We'll be able to distance because there's that dilution outside. So even if someone's got COVID, you know, the wind blows and you're not going to see any of those droplets. Um, But I've been saying, you know, call it October 1st or October 15th when we really go inside. It's too cold to open the windows in classrooms and things, and that is the time when we're going to see a big spike. Because, uh, you know, Major, there are four things that really increase transmission, and let's just lay them out. One is enclosed spaces inside. The other is a crowds, lots of people, seeing lots of people. The third is prolonged period of time. You're around them not for 15 minutes, but for an hour or two hours. And the fourth is deep exhalations, sneezing, coughing, yelling, and singing. That's how you transmit it. So, you know, yes, we're outdoors. We've got physical, it's easier to physical distance on a patio. Now put us inside and for prolonged periods of time, like dining, someone sneezes, and you really got the recipe for serious transmission. And that's in the fall. And I haven't even mentioned flu. I think even if we had no flu, that would be a serious concern for a big spike up, not just in the United States, but all the northern climates. So I
1: want to play you a soundbite that's gotten a lot of attention from the president. He said this on the South Lawn on July 4th. I'm sure you've heard it. Probably many in my audience have heard it and they will expect you to pile on as many have. I'm not really asking you to pile on, but I want you to evaluate if there's anything that is close to being true about what you're about to hear from the president, and if not, why not? Play it, Arden.
0: Now we have tested almost 40 million people. By so doing, we show cases, 99% of which are totally harmless.
1: I think what the president means there, and I'm not trying to translate for him, is that the mortality rate is about one out of a hundred. But that doesn't mean the other 99 are, quote unquote, totally harmless. True.
0: Yeah. I, I think you're, in, I, I don't know what he meant. Um, first of all, he is false that we haven't tested 40 million people. We've done 40 million tests. That's a different thing because a lot of people have had multiple tests or required multiple For tests. understandable reasons. Right. And we've So we've tested much fewer people than 40 million, uh, which would be roughly 10% of the population. Um, 99%, they may not die, but that doesn't mean they're without problems. First of all, we know this uh, uh, multi-system problem in children, they may not die, but a lot of them have residual problems. We don't know the long-term effect. If you get COVID in the lung and it scars up the lung, is there a long-term effect? We don't know. Um, so I think there's a lot of issues where it's really uncertain. If you're out for five weeks laid up, is that you're fine? No, it's not you're fine. Maybe you will return to your baseline, but we shouldn't confuse that with you know, everything's hunky-dory and it's kind of like the common cold. That is just false,
1: and it also strikes me, Zeke, that as a practical matter for a, any kind of business, any kind of school, whether it's a K through twelve school, a college, any business. Positive tests are by themselves, regardless of how sick you get,
0: disruptive. Oh, they, they well, send they send echoes through the system. So we're we're consulting with a number of groups that are trying to restart, reopen, and you know, this issue of what do you do if someone's positive? Do we have to shut down for another 14 days? How do we contact trace? How long are those people, you know, so part of what we're doing is with, with, uh, the entertainment industry. It won't surprise you given my brother. <laughs> A- and part of the issue is how long do we have to cut production? What do we, you know, what do we do for everyone? Um, this is a major, major problem. So look, I am a big advocate and I have from the start that we need to open up primary and secondary schools in the fall. I think it's really important. Um, I think you can do it safely, but whenever I say it, I don't mean no COVID. I mean, you will get COVID and kids will get COVID, but you can do it in a way that try to minimizes those cases and has the kids uh, out of circulation very quickly and trace the other kids who might get it, and the staff who might get it. So, so for my
1: audience, because I know my audience hears you say that and like, oh, that's a ray of hope. That sounds good. What does a classroom look like generically under this plan or this recommendation?
0: So I, I guess we're getting a new word, which is de-densifying classrooms, which is fewer kids per teacher, instructor, s- separated out. They eat at their desks. They stay together. Um, and, you know, the second half of the class is outside in the tent or in a, a mobile classroom. I think that's where we're, or in the gym or in the cafeteria that's been converted because we're not eating lunches in the cafeteria. I think that there's a lot of effort here that has to go into that. I, you know, I don't, I haven't been able to cost it out for a, a primary school or a secondary school, but I know that at my university, the University of Pennsylvania, we, it's uh, at least $40 million that we're going to be spending in, doing all sorts of changes, converting every room to a single, you know, putting guards there so we're sure everyone's wearing a mask before they come in, doing symptom checks every day on every student, staff member, and faculty member who's going to be present on campus. You know, these are non-trivial costs, and we're going to ask school districts to do this just when the tax base is evaporating. So it's going to be very, very challenging uh, to do. Nonetheless, I think you want to reopen the economy, sort of get the economic dislocation as small as possible, parents have to go to work, school has to be open. And I think for kids' benefit also, you know, it's not just the learning that happens in school, which is critically important, it's also the socializing. It's all the other stuff that we learn about when we're at school. And I think it's really important to have it open. It's not risk-free, life is not risk-free. I think it probably is worth it. But I, as I've said to you, Major, you know, come mid-October, it, the chances of spreading it are going to go up.
1: That's the voice of Zeke Emanuel. On the other side of this break, uh, we're going to talk about some graphics he and his colleagues have put together to kind of fill what they perceive to be a void from the national government into what's the pace? What do you think about? How do you evaluate how you're doing in a reopening process? Our special guest, Zeke Emanuel. Segment three of The Takeout in just a second.
0: From CBS Audio, this is The Takeout. And now, from the Sokolov Law Home Studio in Washington, here's Major Garrett.
1: Welcome back. Our special guest, Zeke Emanuel. He has two... Well-known brothers, but right now he is by far the most famous of the three because whether he likes it or not or whether we like it or not, healthcare adaptation, science, and the new normal is the central conversation for every single American every single day. And I know, as he said in segment one, We're chafing against that. We wish this were over. We would like it to be over, but it's not. And if I think collectively we've learned anything in the last four weeks, it's that taking it more seriously than less helps you get better faster. But that's only an amateur's perspective. Zeke has a lot of expertise on this, and he and his colleagues have put together kind of a graphic map to help people understand where they are and where they want to go. Zeke, walk us through that.
0: So... (laughs) you know, a lot of people who I know, and some people who I don't know, kept asking me, well, you know, should I fly to Los Angeles? What about, you know, playing golf? Is that okay? Uh, Should I go dine in a restaurant? And after you get a lot of these questions,
1: should I go to a small dinner party with a with a few friends? Not a huge thing. But
0: can I can can eight people get together? And if we do, what does it look like? And so we decided that the best thing we could do is to try to create an infographic that would go from low risk all the way to high risk items and to try to splay things out. Now, I will be the first to say, I wish we had data that would underlie every single judgment we had to make love. How does golf compare to tennis, compare to basketball? What's it like? What are your chances of getting it if you go to the doctor, COVID-19, if you go to the doctor's office? versus going to a bar um we don't have that kind of data so part of this is judgment and again based upon the four factors that increase transmission and space crowds prolonged period of time and forced exhalations and so down at the bottom in the green you know obviously if you're staying at home we think if you're running by yourself out on a trail those are good things uh Somewhere in the middle is, you know, visiting a doctor's office, uh, uh, going to the hospital emergency room. And at the top, you know, flying on an airplane, really bad idea. I'm not doing it. Uh, I've read recently Tony Fauci and most public health experts, epidemiologists aren't doing it. Going to a bar, indoor restaurant, those are things that you want to avoid. Um, and so I think we're, we're trying to put that out in a easy graphic format, remind people that whenever they're going out into public, they should wear a mask. Um, and I think that's, those are really important rules of thumb, as it were.
1: I want to ask you about something, Zeke, that you may be familiar with. I suspect you are. I've done some reading about this. Um, I was in college in the 1980 1984, the very dawn of AIDS, when uh, first no one knew what it was, then there was a mischaracterization of what it uh- was. Then there was an, oh, my gosh, something is happening, and we need to do something. And the first public service announcements about condom use as a way of dealing with AIDS were very shame-oriented and were very culturally, you're doing bad things, but wear this anyway. And they had very little effectiveness. And then there was a series of public service announcements about condom use that were much more, this is what you're going to do. We have no value judgment about what you want, what you're going to do. We're acknowledging it and here's what we're telling you to do to make yourself safe. And they had a much higher effectiveness rate. The only reason I go through this elaborate conversation is because I feel like we're trapped in that repetitive syndrome with masks. That early on, there was either a shame component to it or you're stupid or whatever, and that created a resistance to them that has proved harmful in our public health space. And we're not still having the conversation that is changing behavior enough to help us out with this. That's my perspective. I'd like to
0: hear your thoughts. Well, I couldn't agree more, uh, Major. I think you're absolutely right. And I think to hark- harken back to the HIV era uh, is absolutely correct. And to compound problems, uh, early on, uh, the CDC said, don't wear masks. Right. They were worried that people would wear uh, N95 masks and take them away from healthcare workers who needed them because we didn't have sufficient supply. But it was a mistake not to say, don't wear N95 masks, we need that for healthcare workers, but put on a cloth mask, Put on a, a make a mask out of a bandana or what have you, and that was a big mistake. And before the CDC flipped, I was on TV and uh, made a big point of, you have to wear masks. We have a lot of good data, and you know part of what I did is I didn't listen to the CDC. I went to the literature, and I looked at the literature, and it's like, People have been testing masks and yes, you know, a bandana around the face is not as good as an N95 mask. We're not pretending that. But is it better than nothing? Absolutely. And it's better than nothing at you breathing out, but also you breathing in uh, a potential droplet. And so we do have to get over this stigmatization or making it a political statement. And we're wearing masks until this thing goes away. Um, and it's got to be habitual. If you look at places in, sh- sorry, <laughs> that happens. That happens. Real life. <laughs> that that that's the mayor. That's the uh, Rah.
1: <laughs> butting in on my life again. Okay,
0: uh, not, that the fir- not for the third first time. time I, I, I will have spoken to him today. Not
1: for the first um, time is Rahm Emanuel butted into my actual
0: professional life, <laughs> or mine, his. <laughs> Um, if, but I, what I was saying is if you go to the Far East, you know, they have more masks, what people mm-hmm. call mask culture. Yep. They, you know, wear masks because of any respiratory symptoms. They have a cough or they're worried about air pollution. And they did much better. They did much better. And I think we just have to take this. This isn't about being, you know, I've heard someone say, oh, only sissies wear masks. Baloney. You wear a mask because you don't want to spread it to someone else and you don't want to catch it from someone else. Will it absolutely protect you? No. Will it decrease your chance of getting COVID? Yes. And everything, it's all about decreasing the chances that you're getting COVID.
1: Zeke, from your perspective, do you think it is practicable to have professional sports anytime soon?
0: <laughs> well, I, uh, two months ago, two, three months ago, I wrote an article uh, about trying to get the NFL back. I've talked to the NFL. I've talked to the WNBA um, and other sports leagues. Um, I would say the best way of getting them back is to be in a bubble. I think the hardest one to do is baseball, mainly because you have so many games. Even if you're, you, know, you, you bring the season down to 60 games, it's still, it's still too many and too many options. Football is probably the easiest. Because you can bring it down to eight games. We had eight games, I think, in 1982 when there was a strike. And then you can have a foreshortened playoff period um, and keep keep everyone in a bubble. Will it be hard? Look, nothing about this is easy. You know, would they chafe against being in a bubble and not being able maybe to see their family or to travel? Yes, we're all in a bubble. I hate this situation. I'm a guy who loves to travel. I used to be on a plane every week pre-COVID. So we're all going to suffer, but it's for the game. And more than for the game, it's for the country. We need sports to come back because we need it as a sign of progress and normalcy. And it'll only come back, as I've said, for a very long time if we create these bubbles. You stay in the bubble. You don't go out of the bubble. You don't have this in and out business. Yes, we foreshorten the season. Yes, you are going to suffer and be in uh residents at a place and not be able to see everyone you like not be able to travel not be able to go to restaurants but is that worth it yes it's worth it and i think we could have restricted sports on that basis Um, will it be exactly no we're not going to have fans in the stadium and there are going to be all sorts of differences you're going to have fewer refs fewer coaches probably Um, but is it going to be really good to have You know, a new football game on TV or a new basketball game on TV? Yes. And by the way, that's coming from a guy who is not a a sports nut. I don't follow sports that much. I like to run. I like to ride my bike. I like to kayak. But I actually don't, you know, follow sports. But I think it's essential we get them back because it's essential for us to begin to feel more normal and to find out the limits of what we can do.
1: Feel more normal and find out the limits of what we can do. I think that is our homework assignment as a society and as individuals uh, for the foreseeable future. And by that, I mean the next several weeks for sure, and maybe every month of this calendar year. Segment four is coming up, and we're going to continue our conversation because Zeke Emanuel says he's an optimist, and I want to get his most optimistic appraisal about two things for COVID-19, vaccine and therapeutics. On the other side of this break, I'm Major Garrett. You're listening to, watching, and thoroughly enjoying The Takeout.
0: From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back
1: to my extravagant home studio in the dining room. Downtown Washington, D.C. Been here for weeks, folks. Watching on CBSN, you know this setup well. All the very nice, elegant things that look historical and have a beautiful, historic patina. Those are my wife's. The baseball caps, the nutty stuff up there, that's all mine. That shows you how our real life breaks down culturally. Zeke Emanuel is our special guest. Uh, Zeke, you said at the beginning you're an optimist. Um, be optimistic or be as naturally informed as you are about therapeutics, vaccine, or vaccines for COVID.
0: Uh, well, vaccines I can be a little more authoritative on. We now uh, have uh, one vaccine in phase three trials. That's the last trial. Phase one is safety. Phase two is does it raise antibodies? Phase two, does it actually protect? you from COVID infection. Um, the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccines. There, um, we are about to have another vaccine entering phase three, uh, and there are a number of other vaccines uh, fast on the heel. There are eighteen different vaccines in human trials, in the safety trials, all the way through these phase three trials. Probably by the uh, early next year, we'll have one that does look like it's either positive or negative um, uh, on. This. I think we're likely to get a vaccine. The big issue with, there are two big issues with the vaccine. One is durability. How long does it protect you against infection? Everyone assumes that we'll get real durability, but with coronaviruses, that is not a given. The actual four coronaviruses we get as common colds, uh, our immunity to them lasts between three and 12 months. Yeah. This one, the vaccine's gonna have to last 12 months to be kind of practical. Uh, if you gotta you know, vaccinate at least 230 million Americans to get herd immunity, that's a big challenge. Um, so I think we'll get a vaccine, what we need to keep the boosters up and the immunity up unknown. Um, and I think that's a big challenge. It won't happen before t- early 2021. And when you say and most of us, mm-hmm. average citizen, we're not likely to get uh, vaccinated before I think uh, the third quarter of 2021. That is July, August, September, kind of time.
1: That anticipated my question about how widely available will it be? What are the distribution manufacturing issues to surmount? And wow. So go ahead.
0: So the distribution manufacturing, both of those. So. One of the things is in the manufacturing, probably the biggest bottleneck will be what's called fill finish. That is putting the vaccine into a glass tube or a syringe uh, in a sterile way. Those factories, first of all, they take about two to three years to build, and they're hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. And the whole, whole world, I'm not talking about just the US, the whole world capacity is running at 85 plus percent with all the other vaccines we need to get. Um, and now we're trying to produce billions of doses of whatever the new vaccine is. That's going to be a big challenge, and we need to build more of them. One of the failures, I think, of this administration is they haven't said, all right, we're going to spend the money, $3, 5000000000 billion, to build more of them so we have more fill-finish capacity, both for COVID and for something else, because we can anticipate we're going to need it. Um, And then you have to distribute it so that you can get 230 million people in a very short amount of time vaccinated. You know, right, I I just learned today, CVS does 20 million vaccines a year. Well, it's got to get triple that if we're going to have any hope of doing it. And Walgreens is going to have to triple its number and Walmart. And, you know, we're going to have to have, you know, tents out there in lots of places giving vaccines and a common database, which, again, we have not had. Uh, in this country. So I think there are some big challenges in terms of both packaging it in a sterile way and then distributing it out and getting it in people's shoulder. That's going to be a big challenge. Therapeutics. We do have a a positive, I think, in the steroid case. The paper is still not finally published in a peer-reviewed journal, but I've got it on reliable sources that dexamethasone did do Uh, a very good job in terms of preventing very sick people uh, from dying. What we haven't had is a therapeutic that actually works earlier on for people who have a mild case to really truncate the five weeks of a serious problem. And that's what we need. And I don't think, you know, up until this point, what we've done is to take drugs off the shelf and try them. And um, I don't think that's going to work super effectively. What we're gonna have to do is get COVID specific treatments and that'll take a lot longer. So I'm actually, I mean, you might get monoclonal antibodies because we can ramp for a variety of reasons. Those are rampable up quickly, maybe in the fall. But I think uh, that's a bigger challenge to get to, you know, hundreds of thousands if not millions of people uh, effectively. And that's just in the US, forget the rest of the world. What we ideally need is a pill Uh, that has two or three drugs that are against the uh, coronavirus. And that'll take a little longer to develop.
1: In the last two and a half minutes of this segment, I want to ask you about hydroxychloroquine. Uh, Peter Navarro, one of the president's top economic advisors, has been, I would say, borderline berating reporters at the White House who have stopped to talk to him about this, saying because of your Atavistic dislike of President Trump and because of bad science and bad clinical studies, the president has been defamed about hydroxychloroquine. He was right. It is effective. It's shown in certain studies that it can be a prophylaxis, that it can minimize symptoms before you get into a very serious uh, lung distress. Evaluate those assertions because Peter Navarro makes them with absolute Sincerity, I believe, and intensity. Evaluate hydroxychloroquine. What we do, what we what we know, what
0: we don't know. Don't take it; it's not good for you. Uh, so uh, last week I was on. Uh, there was a big meeting of twelve hundred people at the WHO, looking at all the data, including the dexamethasone data, data on remdesivir, uh, the vaccine information, and there were uh, re- pretty reliable data on hydroxychloroquine. Suggesting that it was actually worse for you if you were uh, uh, seriously ill with COVID um, and the mortality rate was higher, although not statistically significant, than usual care. I would stay far, far away. There are occasional trials, and Peter Navarro is right on that, that do suggest under the right circumstances it might be okay. But almost every credible scientist I know says, don't waste our time on that. There are many other things to try, and hydroxychloroquine is not in the top group of most likely to be beneficial. And I think you know you can only say it's really working if you selective select only certain studies that you happen to like. Peter Navarro ought to stick to what he's good at in interpreting scientific data. I don't think is his leading talent, um, and if it is. He's being way too selective. Uh, Again, almost every expert I know, including myself, looking at that data is like, "Eh, bad, don't take it. It's wrong to take. And the president, he was just wrong. And he's been wrong many times. He said, you know, it'll go away with the warm weather. Well, here we are at the warm weather and we have record number of cases across the country uh, popping up. You know, be modest about what you know and what you don't know. Um, and I, I think that hasn't been an attribute of this White House. They've, they've shot off their mouth about what is going to be what's definitely the case, and mostly they're wrong. That's the voice of Zeke Emanuel.
1: For our radio audience, that concludes this episode of The Takeout. We thank you for listening. For those of you who want to follow us on the podcast platform and, of course, on CBSN, stay tuned for The Takeout Outtake, especially SEO. Out.
0: CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett.
1: That's me. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial, where we lighten things up a little bit here. That was uh, almost a full hour of heavy COVID-19 for all the proper reasons and appropriate reasons. So Zeke Emanuel is our special guest. Uh, As we noted at the top, he has two famous brothers, Ari and Rom. He's more famous than the two of them combined right now because of the cir- circumstances we find ourselves in, because healthcare is his area of expertise, COVID-19, one of those areas in particular. Um, we have three threshold questions, Zeke, that we ask every single guest on this program now for more than three and a half years. So here they are. Take- no
0: one told me this so I could oh, study. Be, you know, trust I'm me, a- they'll, be, they'll be
1: easy for you. Because I read from your book, which we will have a whole other episode on in the future, which country has the world's best health care? That you rank everything. You rank all sorts of things in your life. So these are three ranked questions. So most influential book in your life, uh, your all-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies. And if you're going to indulge yourself musically, you're really going to get into a groove. What kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to?
0: <laughs> oh, boy. Um <laughs> So, most influential book, it's really hard sure, to pick sure. a single book. Um, I would say, uh, you know, might be Aristotle, um, could be Thomas Hobbes. Uh, so, mostly philosophy. Uh, John Rawls, A Theory of Justice, probably the uh, best uh, ethics book in the 20th century. Well, not probably, definitely. Um, those have been really influential in my thinking about ethics and how to proceed. And since my profession is about thinking about ethical issues in medicine. that They've been really, really influential in, in, in the way I think about the world. Movie? Movie yeah, is easy. Okay. <laughs> that, that, of all the three categories you said, that, that's the easiest. Some Like It Hot from 1959. <laughs> yes. it is, it's the best comedy ever yep. done. Uh, it's got everything in it, cross-dressing, homosexuality in 59. Yes. And the story is hysterical. If you're not You know, on the floor, laughing hysterically. It's fantastic. I love that movie. And I watched it probably every few months with my kids while they were growing up. It's just a fantastic movie. And it's in black and white. You think it's like, it's got Marilyn Monroe in it. I mean, it's just terrific. And who are the two male stars? Um... Uh, Jack, Tony Curtis Jack and Tony Curtis. Yeah,
1: Tony Curtis, right and they, and, the, yeah, they, they, and the architectural central player in that movie is from my hometown, the Hotel del California in Coronado, just outside of San Diego, so. yeah,
0: and they pop out of a cake. <laughs> <laughs> what's better than that? <laughs> Marilyn Monroe, out of a cake, yes, exactly, um, and uh, what's your music? so I, I actually it's a very interesting. My father was a big classical music, and I, I don't actually chill to music. I, I chill by reading books. Uh, more. But if I'm going to listen to music, I really, uh, I tend to listen to uh, classic rock and I like uh, Bob Dylan uh, and I've liked him. I saw him in in, in the early seventies when he came back after his accident and I've sort of been hooked on him ever since.
1: Excellent. Before we go, uh, because you mentioned medicine and ethics, uh, what are the complicating factors for those considerations that COVID-19 has uniquely raised?
0: Well, it's, it's raised a huge number of questions around allocating scarce resources. So early on, we didn't have enough ventilators. People were worried about having to choose which patient got ventilators. You know, me and some colleagues wrote an uh, influential paper in, in the New England Journal about that. And right now, I'm working on the question of if we develop a vaccine, and even in, if we have a billion doses, how do we distribute that vaccine among all the countries in the world? That's a question to which we could find. Everyone says it's got to be equitably distributed. It's got to be fairly distributed. And then no one says, well, what's that mean? How many do you give to each country? How do you decide that? We're working on that question right now. And we're pretty close. (laughs) We got about, I I put together about 20 people and and we've been arguing about it for several weeks and and we're working on the paper. So um, it's a very hard question. And then there's, of course, the question of refusing treatment. I don't want the to be intubated. I don't want the ventilator. So we have a lot of those questions too. Mm
1: -hmm. In the last minute and a half, and this is highly unfair, but I don't get a chance to ask people like you this question very often. When you think about the ethics of physician-assisted suicide, where do you come down?
0: Well, I have been for 25 years um, on, uh, I would not legalize physician-assisted suicide in this country. I don't think it's a good idea to legalize it. I have spent uh, 35 years working to improve care for dying patients in this country. Um, One of my first articles was about uh, improving care for for dying patients. I think we have to focus it. One of the reasons, uh, Major Garrett, I'm not pro-legalization is people think, well, we solved the end-of-life care problem when we legalized assisted suicide. Um, But the fact is that a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of people who are dying actually think about physician-assisted suicide, and an even smaller percentage actually use it. Go to a place like Oregon, which has had it in the United States for longer than any place, and less than 1 in 200 patients who dies actually uses assisted suicide. This is not a solution to a major problem of how to make end-of-life care better in this country. And that's the problem I'm focused on. How do I make, you know the dying experience for patients and their families better? How do we do it so that they die at home where they want to die? We, they don't die in the hospital on machines, which almost every American says that's not for them. And I, I think that's assisted suicide is not the answer to that question. And, and that's my major uh, objection to it.
1: One of the great benefits of my career and one of the great benefits of this show is I can always say, I'm glad I asked. Zeke, I'm glad I asked. That and so many other questions. Thanks for being with us. It's great to see you. We'll be in touch.
0: Great. Thank you. This was a wonderful interview. Thanks, everybody. See you, everybody. See you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more... Go to takeoutpodcast.com. The takeout is a production of CBS Audio.
1: If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Look around.